0: Well, good morning. good morning. Welcome to all of you here. It's great to uh, see you. Welcome to those of you online and those of you in the community center. And a special welcome to our middle schoolers who just came back from camp had a great time. Glad you're back. As you know, our summer series is on Jesus' parables. And you may have noticed that we haven't read the scripture yet. Today we're going to read it as we go. Because most parables rely on timing and surprise and some cultural customs in order to get Jesus's full intended effect. Remember that parables are stories that that invite a response from the hearers. Jesus told them in the context of real life situations. They pull us into a story engaging our emotions, and bypassing our rationalizations. They reveal our true attitudes in order to challenge us to change in our perspectives as well as in our actions. That's why Jesus used them so much and why people love them. They are powerful and effective and often quite fun. Today's parable can cause confusion simply because we don't recognize our own cultural filters and assumptions. But we just need reminders of several important customs, and then like Jesus' original hearers, we will totally get his punchline and feel its power. So let's begin with prayer. Jesus, help us to hear your words today with full effect. Help us respond as you want us to respond. Amen. Well, let's read the text out loud together, step by step. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Well, let's get the players straight. First we have a rich man who would be well-known in the community. He is a wealthy landowner who rents out his land for tenant farmers to cultivate. In a minute, we'll meet his tenant farmers who owe him a share of the crops once the harvest comes in. Now, the accused is a white-collar middle manager uh, who handles all of the agreements and payments between the two. And we have a whistleblower who knew that the rich boss would want to know about any wrongdoing in his business and make it right. Now, when Jesus says, wasting or squandering his possessions, he is reminding us of the parable of the prodigal son, which immediately precedes and parallels this parable. So what does the boss do? So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? The whistleblower was right. The boss acts exactly the way a righteous and yet shrewd uh, landowner would act. He asks the customary question designed to give the manager an opportunity to, to defend himself, yet he avoids giving any details of the accusation in case the guilty will implicate himself. Then we get a dramatic pause that doesn't come through in the text, but it's there. The manager clams up. Instead of defending himself, as would normally happen in this situation at this point, he pleads the fifth and by his silence confirms that something, he's guilty of something. The next proper action would have been to jail him or to demand restitution, but the owner does neither. Instead, he generously adds mercy to his judgment. Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. In other words, you're fired. Clean out your desk, give a, give up your ledgers, and uh, you're free to go. The owner cannot afford a dishonest or wasteful manager in his business or for his reputation in the community. But apparently he can afford to go without recovering whatever this guy squandered, and he can afford to go without exacting justice on this guy. Well, this prodigal's joy at not being jailed is tempered by his unemployment problem. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. He considers his options and resources and realizes he has one critical resource left. Time is on his side. The manager has a tiny window of opportunity, before turning in his ledgers and when everyone knows he's been fired. This skunk needs a plan to come out smelling like a rose, especially to people he'll need to rely on in the future. So what will he do? So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? Okay, let's pause for some cultural background. Our clever manager is acting as if he has not been fired, uh, saying by my master, and the tenant farmers have no reason to think anything is amiss. So everyone is acting entirely normally. Now the way accounts were kept back then is that the IOU would be written in the debtor's handwriting and would be safeguarded by the manager on behalf of the owner. So disputes were minimized. Tenant farmers always knew how much they owed, and the bill confirms it in writing. Now, although the manager works for the owner, it's the manager who would advocate on behalf of the debtors for any debt forgiveness in case of bad crops or bad weather or whatever. Only an owner can change what is owed or forgive debt, but it's the manager who initiates that conversation. Our shrewd manager is not short on initiative. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. Jesus' crowds are gasp as they hear this. This audacious sneak is ripping off a huge amount of what the owner would get come harvest. And he's dramatically increasing the tenant's net profit. And he's playing it off as if he got the master to do it all. So as the tenants leave, the whole town starts rejoicing. And the manager is everyone's hero. At least until the master finds out. So what will the master do? The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. What? The villain gets away with fraud? How can commending this cheat make any sense at all? A good executive wouldn't do this. And a God figure in a parable better not get commended for dishonesty or our whole idea of right and wrong, of justice, gets turned upside down. Now, for centuries, this parable has confused and upset many people, especially Westerners. Unfortunately, our cultural assumptions ruin the punchline. It doesn't say he was commended for his dishonesty. He fired him for that. It says he commended him for his shrewdness, and here's why. As a result of his fraud, the whole town is rejoicing, and the owner and his hero manager are seen as the most generous, honorable people imaginable. Everyone in the story is richer. The tenants are richer with crops and joy, the manager is richer with friends, and the owner is richer in uh, reputation and in honor, but only as long as no one finds out he did not authorize the debt forgiveness. Now, it's true the rich man will be somewhat less rich come harvest, but he's already demonstrated that money is less important to him than character, mercy, generosity, and honor. We've seen that. The manager experienced the generous mercy of his master at the beginning of the story and in a desperate ploy went all in, gambling his very life on his master's character and values. The master commends this leap of faith without commending his wrongdoing. Jesus' most famous cliffhanger is the parable of the prodigal son, right? But this is his second most famous cliffhanger. Don't you just wanna know what happens to the older brother? Don't you wanna know what happens to this shrewd manager right now? Jesus has us right where he wants us. Questioning what we think we know about God and about right and wrong, Jesus pulls us into the cliffhangers and says, you are the end of the story. Will you join the Father's celebration over the lost being found despite their failures? Will you repent from squandering God's gifts and cast yourself on God's mercy despite your failures? That's the power of the parables. Jesus' story surprises us with grace, but also challenges us to respond differently. Always pay attention to how Jesus' parables make you feel. Can you feel it? This is sheer grace. I love the story people tell of the sales manager who lost a million-dollar contract and offers to resign. But his boss says, No way! I'm not wasting a million-dollar investment in your education. Right? I've felt that kind of grace, and I want to give that kind of grace to people. Well, parables seek a response, and I think there are four main ways Jesus wants us to respond to this parable. Our first response is to bank everything on God's character like the shrewd manager did. Jesus wants us to cast ourselves on God without recourse or excuses. Can you hear it? Lost sheep, lost coin, prodigal sons, prodigal manager. This is the essential gospel experienced by them all. Although we don't deserve it, God seeks us out and forgives us and heaven rejoices when we fully rely on Jesus. We receive mercy from a grace-filled God. Remember, deserve has got nothing to do with it. What does this look like for you? Maybe you need to double down on accepting Jesus' grace. Or maybe you need to let go and let God lavish his grace on people you think don't deserve it. Secondly, Jesus wants us to be shrewd. In other places, this same word is translated wise. Matthew says Jesus told his disciples to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Jesus is repeating the same message here. Be wise and not evil. Don't be naive of how the world behaves. Don't be caught off guard by evil, but don't be caught up in it either. He says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Jesus commends the manager's quick thinking, resourcefulness, creativity, and calculated risk, not as dishonesty. This manager has an instinct for turning lemons into lemonade. Jesus wants us to try creative solutions that assume God's best intentions for us. If this guy can be commended, how much more will God commend us when we behave like children of light, acting wisely and rightly in a world darkened by sin and self-interest? Now, as if the manager's commendation isn't enough of a mind-blowing plot twist, Jesus doubles down with another surprise in his next sentence. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus commands us use worldly wealth in ways that pay eternal dividends. The manager orchestrated debt forgiveness so he would be the hero. But Jesus goes much further. Don't only use wealth to make your whole town rejoice, like the manager. Use wealth that makes heaven rejoice, too. Jesus was always talking like this, converting earth to heaven, bringing God's reign here. The kingdom of heaven is among you. He wants us to use money, time, skills, relationship for spiritual impact. Author Randy Alcorn summarizes the Bible's treasure principle like this. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. This passage isn't about giving money to the church, although we'd be grateful, especially at fiscal year end. This passage is about how we use everything God gives us. How do we turn lemons into lemonade and then into God moments. How can we envision creative opportunities to leverage God's gifts for maximum kingdom impact? In the name of Jesus, our own auto angels convert their time and skills into transportation for people in need. Some convert an extra bedroom into housing for young adults. Many of us convert our own family events into places of welcome for people who don't know Jesus. Jesus repeatedly says the way we manage earthly wealth eternally impacts both us and others. He emphasizes it again at the end of this passage. Together, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So we respond to Jesus by first, trusting ourselves to God absolutely. Second, acting shrewdly. Third, leveraging worldly wealth into spiritual impact, and our fourth response is to be faithful with whatever God gives you. Jesus quotes a very classic rabbinic proverb, faithfulness with the lesser prepares you for faithfulness with the greater. So Jesus wants us to be faithful with whatever we have, lesser or much, in contrast to the dishonest manager. But Jesus raises the stakes all the way to heaven, again connecting our faithfulness with worldly wealth, with being entrusted with true spiritual riches. A little goes a long way in God's kingdom. Sometimes we want to be the hero, faithful in the big things, without being faithful in the little things. But it doesn't work that way. Jesus says, be faithful, spending time with me each day. Be faithful in your relationships, at work and school. Be faithful wherever you have influence, and you will be trustworthy for greater leadership. I'll close with this story. Many people are familiar with Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. It's a gospel-filled story with an amazing scene of a bishop who puts into practice this parable, this gospel-filled parable. There's a godly bishop, who offers generous hospitality to Jean Valjean, providing lodging, food, and a blessing to this broken, angry thief. That night, Jean Valjean beholds the bishop asleep. He's transfixed by his peace, contentment, and holiness. Nevertheless, Valjean steals the silverware and runs off into the night. Well, the bishop is unfazed by the theft and reminds his outraged companions, the silver belongs to God and should be used for the poor, which, in a way, it has. Well, suddenly the gendarmes arrive and present Valjean in chains with a silver right in his backpack. The bishop says, ah, there you are. I'm glad to see you, but I gave you the candlesticks, too which are silver like the rest and would bring 200 francs. Why didn't you take them along with your cutlery? I love this God moment. Hugo writes, Jean Valjean opened his eyes and looked at the bishop with an expression no human could describe. He's dumbstruck as he's released. The incredulous soldiers depart. The staff are outraged that the silver is squandered, but the bishop fixes his eyes on Valjean and speaks intently. Do not forget ever that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. The bishop's quick thinking and overwhelming grace transforms Valjean from a sinner to a saint. For the cost of a simple meal, a warm bed, and a silver set, a man's life is redeemed for eternity, and through his spiritual transformation, hundreds of others experience physical and spiritual help and hope in the story. The bishop practices extravagant trust in his generous God, he's shrewd in a crisis moment, he converts worldly wealth to eternal riches, and he is faithful with little and much. And like the manager and like all of us, he doesn't know how it's all going to turn out, but his actions bring honor and reputation to God. Jesus' parables and Les Miserables are fictional, but Jesus uses them to change us. Real bell-press people are doing this kind of thing all over the place, here and around the world, in big and small ways. We all have candlesticks and lodging and meals, and skills, and relationships. How can you leverage them for kingdom impact? Let's all respond to Jesus like this, making the most of every opportunity. So Jesus, inspire and empower us to be gospel-filled, faithful people who are quick to see opportunities to do kingdom work with everything you give us. Amen.